remember uh, recently we concluded uh, probably about a year and a half study on the uh, book of uh, Hebrews. We went verse by verse through Hebrews. And then I knew we just had a, a few weeks uh, prior to the Christmas emphasis, so we've been in just a very brief mini-series that I've entitled Healing for the Soul. We've already dealt with the issues of grief, depression, and worry. And uh, today we want to uh, look at anger, at the issue of anger. I will tell you, my wife said you have uh, preached on anger way too many times. And uh, I told her it was just indicative of the fact that this is a struggle in my life. And I have not won the battle yet. And so uh, I need this reminder as much as uh, anyone uh, else. So just know that I'm preaching to myself as well as I'm preaching to you. And as I've shared with all of these four messages, uh, these have been messages that have not really been prepared in a study. Uh, they've been prepared through my life's struggles, uh, whether grief, depression, worry, or anger. And, uh, and what I'll share are principles that I've learned, that I have applied to my life, and I have found them to work. Again, I just admit it, I have not arrived in this anger. But I believe my wife and my children will tell you that uh, Daddy has grown in this area and uh, continues to grow uh, by God's grace and by God's power at work in me. I hope you've uh, picked up a copy of the uh, sermon notes, and uh, you'll notice right off the bat uh, the title of the message, How to Be Good and Mad. Not how to be good and mad, but how to be good and mad all at the same time. In other words, we want to learn how to direct our anger to be a constructive force instead of a destructive force. You know, it is estimated that over 90%, over 90% of all marital, family, and interpersonal conflicts result from not knowing how to handle anger. And when it comes to expressing anger, although this isn't very flattering, uh, most of us uh, are either skunks or turtles. And let me tell you what I mean by that. When a skunk gets upset, he lets it rip. <laughs> sprays it out, stinks up the place, and everybody knows the skunk is upset. On the other hand, the turtle pulls back into its shell, uh, closes up tight, and just sees on the inside. Uh, what is interesting to me is how often skunks marry turtles. Uh, for example, in our marriage, my wife is just now coming in. You would guess, I know you would guess, who am I? I'm the skunk, right? And Kathy's the turtle. Uh, so follow along in your notes as we look at five points that have been very helpful to me as I continue to battle, grow in this area and controlling my anger, which will then lead us to five key truths or five key applications in controlling anger. 
And the first point that you see there in your notes is where it all begins. This is the first step. And until you take this step, you're not going anywhere. And that is to resolve to control anger. There has to be resolve on my part, on your part, to get serious about this area and to control our anger. Look at James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. It says, let every man be quick to listen but slow to use his tongue and slow to lose his temper. For man's temper, that's anger, out of control, is never the means of achieving God's true goodness. So the first step in controlling anger is to stop making excuses and start assuming responsibility. Look at Proverbs 29, 11. It says, a fool always loses his temper. But a wise man holds it back. Circle that phrase, holds it back. And when it says a wise man holds back his anger, that is a choice you make. It is a resolve to control your anger. But you say, Andy, you just don't understand. When I get angry, I just cannot help myself. Reality is you can control your anger far more than you realize. Uh, just a few examples. Uh, this first one probably or possibly happened to a lot of y'all this morning. You're coming into church in the car. And before you left, you and your spouse got in some huge fight or argument. Or you got in some huge fight or argument with the kids. And you're driving to church. And it's like World War III in the car. And, you know, the smoke's coming out everywhere. But the moment you pull into the church parking lot and you get out and begin meeting people, what? Suddenly you're able to turn it off. It's all smiles. Everything's great. I'm okay. Or how about a situation at work where you will control your anger with your boss that you're terribly mad at who you believe is wrong you, but you know if you were just let it rip and say what you really, really feel like saying, you'd probably lose your job. So you'll control it there, but then what will we do? We will go home and then we'll dump on our spouse and our children. Or you're on the phone. Or you say right before the phone call, you know, you've, you've lost your temper at the children. And children are scattering everywhere to escape your wrath. And then the phone rings, you pick it up, and it's the last person on earth. Maybe it's one of the ministers here at the church. You wouldn't want them to know you're mad. And then suddenly, just in a moment, you know, you can just totally change your whole tone, your whole disposition. So if you're ever going to learn to control your anger, and this is where we go next in our notes, you're going to have to learn to distinguish between righteous and sinful anger. First, we discover that righteous anger is commanded. That's right. Righteous anger is actually commanded in the Bible. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 there in your notes. The command is be angry. And this is in the context of interpersonal relationships. This is be angry and yet do not sin in your anger. Now, I do think it's important to see the larger context in which this verse is found because it shows us the importance of really looking to God's grace to get control over this issue of anger. 
In the larger context, it's talking about us coming to know Jesus as our Lord and as our Savior. And that once an individual comes to know Christ, that our number one goal, our number one priority and objective in life is to become more and more like Jesus. And in light of that, we have to put off the old self. That, that individual that we were before we came to know Christ with its lust, uh, with its falsehoods, with the greed and the selfishness, and yes, the uncontrolled anger, and we're to put on the new man. We're to begin to develop the attitudes and the character of Jesus Christ as the power of the Spirit works within us as God's child. And so the, the importance of this is that our testimony is at stake. And the advancement of God's name is at stake. We don't want to bring reproach upon the name of Jesus Christ. And so we want to develop in our lives within our church family a love that is what? Greater than our differences. A love that unites us in our diversity. And a love that knows how to control anger so that it does not become a destructive force in our families and in our church family as well. Uh, now, why did God create us with the ability to become angry? And the answer is very simple. God intended anger to provide the energy, the emotional energy we would need to tackle problems and to resolve them. And when anger is used for that purpose, it is a very good thing. And let me give you two very good biblical examples of this. The first one is found in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 11. These, this is, these are not in your uh, sermon notes. But in chapter 11, the children of Israel, uh, a particular city of Israel, uh, Jabez Gilead, comes under attack by the Ammonites. And the city is besieged. And uh, it looks like all is about to be uh, lost. And uh, the uh, Ammonite king is, uh, is willing for them to surrender. But he says, if you surrender, man, woman, girl, baby, I'm going to gouge your right eyes out. Just for it to be a shame and a reproach on the nation of Israel. Well, this word began to get out among the nation, and it finally came to Saul. He heard what had happened, what was happening at Jabesh Gilead. And this is what the Bible says in verse 6, 1 Samuel 11. It says, Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily. The Spirit of God came upon him mightily when he heard these words, and he became very angry. He became angry as a result of God's Spirit come upon him. But as you read the rest of the chapter, what did that anger motivate him to do? To rise up and to look for a solution. And he gathered an army. And he had that army attack. He developed a plan of attack to defeat the enemy, which he accomplished. Another great example of the New Testament is Christ cleansing the temple when he drove the money changers from the temple. And most of our most of us, when we picture that scene, you know, we think Jesus just walking in the temple. And then he just blows a gasket. And he just suddenly loses it. And he's just throwing over tables. And he's got a whip and he's beating them all out. That's really not the case. If you study that very, very carefully, uh, in Matthew chapter 11, where it's recorded, 
It talks about the day before he drove the money changers out. The day before. It says, and he entered Jerusalem, and he, Jesus, came into the temple, and after looking all around, he departed from Bethany with his wife. And that phrase, looking all around, has the idea of investigating, examining. So he says, before, the day before he cleansed the temple, he comes into Jerusalem, goes into the temple, and makes a very careful investigation of everything that's going on. He sees the reproach that's being brought on his uh, father by the way the temple is being misused and, and abused. And therefore, then he goes to Bethany and he sleeps over a night. And he, what is he doing? He's reflecting. What is the appropriate action for me to take to resolve this issue and the wrong that's being done in my father's temple? And so the next day he came back, and I just want you to know it was very intentional what he did. He did it very deliberately. He was under control. But yes, with passion because of what was taking uh, place. So again, God gave us this emotion to give us the energy to tackle life's problems and resolve them. But like all of God's gifts, we've abused them. And we've misused anger. And that's where sinful anger is condemned. And there are three very specific sinful expressions of anger condemned in the Bible. And get this first one down in your sermon notes. Blowing up. Blowing up is the first sinful expression of anger that's condemned in the Bible. Proverbs 29 11 says, A fool always loses his temper. This is the skunk that we talked about earlier. And if you don't like being called a skunk, how about a volcano? Uh, you erupt like a volcano with hot lava coming out of your mouth, burning up everyone around you. You keep spewing out your rage until everyone backs off and you get your own way. Why is blowing up a sinful expression of anger? What did we say was the reason that God gave us the emotion of anger? To provide the energy to attack problems. The person who blows up is not using his anger to attack and resolve problems, but he's using it as what? A weapon to intimidate people in order to get his or her own way. Now the second sinful expression of anger that is condemned in the Bible is clamming up. Clamming up. Ephesians 4.26 says, Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Don't uh, bear a spirit of resentment and bitterness in your heart. And this is the turtle that we talked about earlier. And if you don't like the analogy of a turtle, how about a martyr? Uh, you may not explode, but everyone knows that you're angry. You do it by pouting, by giving people the silent treatment. You can see it in the expression of your face. You may never say how upset you are, but everybody knows that you're upset. And everyone has to walk on eggshells around you. And why is clamming up a sinful expression of anger? Well, you can't attack a problem by retreating into your shell. And let's be very, very honest. Where the person who blows up uses his anger to intimidate others with rage, you use your anger to manipulate with silence. And bottom line, the person who blows up and the person who clams up, they're after the very same thing. What is that? They're what? 
They want to get their way. What they want. Now the third sinful expression of anger is burning up. Blowing up, clamoring up, and then burning up. Uh, Ephesians 4.26 in the paraphrased message, do not use anger as a fuel, as fuel for revenge. Do not use your anger as fuel for revenge. Burning up is when anger is used as a weapon to hurt people. And in most cases, cases the weapon is what? It's your tongue. You are the master of sarcasm, slander, and cold touch. You have a deli mouth. Uh, when you get ticked off, uh, your tongue comes out and you start to slash others. You're not interested in dressing the problem or what? Getting even. And this is why the Bible condemns revenge. In Romans 12, we read, Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. So the first step in controlling anger is to acknowledge if you're a skunk that my blowing up is wrong. I can't excuse it. I need to assume responsibility. If you're a turtle, you need to accept responsibility. That clamming up is not an appropriate way to express anger and to acknowledge that. Or if you are burning up all of these are sinful expressions, and you must assume responsibility. Now, this brings us to our first key truth. first key truth sort of sums this up. God created man with the capacity to become angry to provide the emotional motivation and energy to resolve problems, not attack people. So <laughs> anger is to be used not to attack people, but to resolve problems. The second key point that will help you in controlling your anger is to remember the cost of uncontrolled anger. To remember the cost of uncontrolled anger. You know, most of us in this part of the country have seen the horrific damage uh, caused by tornadoes. Uh, uncontrolled anger is like a relational uh, tornado that rips through friendships, uh, families, churches, and even nations. The destruction that is caused literally can take only seconds. Literally, it can take only seconds. But the cost of rebuilding can take years. Can take years. Look at the next six verses in your notes, which we'll run through very quickly, which speak of the cost of uncontrolled anger. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A person without self-control is as defenseless as a city with broken down walls. In other words, if you cannot control your anger, whether you blow up your clam up your burn up, it says you become as, a, as defenseless as a city without broken down walls. And notice the next verse, Ephesians 4.26. Anger gives a foothold to the devil. So if you don't have control over your anger, you're as defenseless as a city without walls, you invite the devil right in to get a foothold in your life. And he can use this issue of anger to literally not only manipulate you, but destroy the relationships that you're in to destroy others. And that's why Proverbs 29, 22, the next verse says, a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. When you have no control over your spirit, when you have no control over the anger, you totally lose objectivity. Now you're, you're just reacting on the basis of raw feeling. 
And that's when all sorts of mistakes and sins occur. And then Proverbs 15, 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but the slow to anger calms the dispute. So not just transgression, but you bring in strife and dispute and conflict. And then look at Proverbs 11, verse 29 from the Living Bible. The fool who provokes his family to anger and resentment will finally have nothing worthwhile left. Talk about cost of uncontrolled temper. The fool who provokes his family to anger and resentment will finally have nothing worthwhile left. Let me ask a question. Why do we use anger in our home to motivate our children or our spouse? Again, let's be honest. Because sadly, it works. Anger is a powerful emotion that can exert force to make people comply. But listen very carefully. It only works in the short term. It only works in the short term. Look at the next verse. Proverbs 22.8. I think in your notes it says Proverbs 22.6, but the correct reference is 22.8. It says the rod of his anger will what? Fail. It will fail. And this brings us to our next key truth. When you lose your temper, you lose. Anger causes alienation in relationships, which leads to apathy. Anger causes alienation in relationships which leads to apathy. See, when you constantly use sinful anger, whether it's your spouse or your children or, or your co-workers, people around you, they come to the conclusion, I just can't please this person, so what's the point anymore? I just give up. I walk out. I'm not, I'm just, there's no point any longer to try. And also realize, when you lose your temper, you can lose your health. Have you ever said, that really burns me up? Well, that's the tr truth. Anger literally does that. Uh, anger attacks the adrenal glands. And the impact is like shooting acid into your organs, which can cause a multiplicity of health problems. You also lose the respect of others. You lose the love of the people that you love the most. And you know, there's only one letter difference between the word danger and the word anger, and that's the letter D. Anger is truly dangerous. Look at the third point in this matter of learning how to be good and mad. Repent of selfishness, which is the root of sinful anger. Now folks, this is a tough pill to swallow, but unless you swallow it, you're never going to know real victory in this area. At the root of sinful anger, whether you're blowing up, whether you're climbing up, whether you're burning up, it's just nothing but purity and selfishness. And so you need to realize, I really can't blame the other person. God is just pointing out to me my need to deal with my selfishness to become more like Him. Look at James chapter 4, verse 1, which states this very well. Where do you think all these appalling wars and quarrels come from. They come about because you want your own way. And you fight for it deep inside yourself. That's what's behind anger. Just selfishness. It's just me wanting my way. You wanting your way. And then there's a clash. There's a battle that goes on. But again, we have to come back. Are you a believer? Are you a follower of Christ? If you are, 
then your primary goal is to become like Jesus. It's not to get you away, but it's to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And to pattern your life off His life. Who, it says what? Did not come to be served, but what? To serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. By the way, uh, I believe the book of Philippians will be our next uh, book study. I think uh, in January we'll begin a verse-by-verse book study in the book of Philippians. But look at these uh, two verses out of Philippians 2, which really uh, focuses on what should be the, uh, the goal of our lives and the direction of our lives. It says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind that each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own interest, but also the interest of others. There's the antidote for anger, is to give yourself to live out that verse. And there are three key words in that verse, if you want to circle them. The word regard, the word important, and the word look at, the phrase look out for you, which is a single word in the Greek text. Regard, important, and look out for it. It's very interesting. The word regard literally means to let lead or let command. And the word important literally means your superior or your commander. In other words, if you were to literally translate this from the Greek text, it would be that you are, to, with humility or holiness of mind, you're to let lead in your thoughts and your attitudes towards others that they are your superior. So as a husband, I'm to let lead in my faults that Kathy is my superior, that my children are my superior. Here at the church, that you are my superior. In other words, what's the point? That I exist not to be served, but what? To serve my wife, to serve my children, to serve you. It's not what I can get, but it's what I can give is the standard that I should be after if I'm going to follow Christ. And then when it says, do not merely look out for your own interests, but also the interests of others, that's a fascinating word in the Greek text. In Philippians 3.14, that same word is translated goal, G-O-A-L, G-O-A-L. And the reason is, this is a word that's just full of meaning. And, and the thought behind this word is that something has captured my attention to the point that my one goal in life is to apprehend it and make it my own. And so when you put this into context, what this is saying is, I should make us the goal of my life, not getting my way, but what? Serving the interests of others. Serving the needs of others. Ministering to others, which again is the very heart of true, authentic Christianity. And again, this is why this issue of anger is such a critical issue. Because Jesus said they will know that you are my disciples by what? Your love. Your love for one another. And anger destroys that. Anger brings that reproach on the testimony of Christ. But look at the key truth. Very practical application that has really helped me. Diffuse anger by surrendering expectations to serve others. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Diffuse anger by surrendering expectations to serve others. See, here's reality. In all interpersonal relationships, whether it's you and your spouse, or you and your children, or your boss, or your co-workers, you have expectations of those individuals. We just, 
It's just we just develop those expectations and, and, and lead to those expectations or, or rights that we believe that we have. And when those expectations are not met, we have been wrong, and then that's when we explode or we clam up or we burn up or whatever it might be. So the real key is surrendering our rights, surrendering our expectations to be a servant. It's fascinating. You know, we just looked at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. You know what the next verse is on? It's built on the example of Christ. And it talks about Jesus, who although He existed equal with God, He didn't consider equality with God something to selfishly grasp. But He what? Emptied himself. He surrendered all of his rights, all of his expectations to his heavenly Father. For what purpose? To take the form of a bondservant. And being in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he what? Humbled himself, just like it says in verse 3, that we're to know humility of mind. And how did he humble himself? By dying that death on Calvary's cross. Taking the punishment that you and I deserve. Because he was putting our needs before his needs. He was putting our welfare above his welfare. And he was willing to suffer in order to meet our needs. So, if you're going to know victory over this area of anger. If you're going to see growth in this area. You have to begin by a resolve. I take responsibility for my sinful expression of anger. I'm not going to stop making excuses. And then I'm going to remember the cost of uncontrolled anger, which should hopefully get my attention, wake me up a little bit about the danger. And then I'm going to repent over selfishness. I'm going to I'm going to swallow that pill that my real problem is just my own selfishness. It's not this other person causing this. Is this this other person not using this person in this circumstance, these situations just to reveal the need that I have to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And then look at the look at the fourth truth. Reflect before reacting with destructive words. Resolve to control the anger. Remember the cause. Repent of selfishness. And then reflect. This is where it talks about the wise man holds back his anger. He holds it back and he holds it back in order, uh, in order to reflect before reacting with destructive words. Look at uh, Proverbs 15.1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Look at Proverbs 29.11 again. A stupid man gives free rein to his anger. A wise man waits and lets him grow cool. So that expression, cool, that's biblical. Cool. That's what God is saying. When you get angry, you know, don't just immediately react, cool it, take the opportunity to reflect before reacting. And then look at Proverbs 29, 20. Observe the people who always talk before they think. Even simpletons are better off than they are. So here's the key truth. Think before you talk. Think before you talk. And if you don't, you know what's going to happen. You're going to put your foot right in your mouth. And you're going to hurt yourself. And you'll notice in your notes, I've used that word think as an acrostic. 
just to give you the questions you need to ask as you reflect before you do speak, whether it be to your spouse, your child, co-worker, whoever it might be. The T, is it truthful? I need to, before I talk, I need to ask, and what I'm about to say, is it truthful? I, I don't want to embellish, I don't want to stretch. You know, I don't want to take the position of a warrior trying to win his case. I want to say, is it truthful? Speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, Ephesians 4.25. The age, is it helpful? What I'm about to say, is it really going to help the situation? Is it going to help the other person? That's the real key. Notice Ephesians 4.29. Don't use foul or abusive language. That everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. So what I'm about to say, is it, is it truthful? I don't want to embellish. I don't want to lie. I don't want to stretch the truth. Is this going to be helpful in hopefully resolving this situation? Now, now let me just back off. We need to set a balance here. You know, in interpersonal relationships, we're not to give people what they want or what they need. So there are times when we have to practice a tough love. But even when we practice a tough love, the focus is, is, should be on him, not me, but the other person, and helping them. And so even here, yes, is it truthful? Is it helpful? Is this going to help to resolve this issue or not? The I, is it inspiring? Is it inspiring? We should help Others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. So what I'm about to say, would, would this inspire others uh, to do what is right and to be built up in the Lord? And then here's a very important one, the letter N. Is it necessary? Yeah, what I'm about to say, is it really necessary? Uh, and timing could be an issue here. Sometimes we, we do need to just cool and even give the other person the opportunity to cool down uh, for a while. But is it necessary? Look at Proverbs 17, 14. Starting a quarrel is like opening a floodgate, so stop before a dispute breaks up. Is it necessary? And then the letter K, is it kind? Let your conversation be gracious and attractive so that you will have the right response for everyone. So before you speak, Reflect to ensure that what you're going to say is going to be truthful, helpful, inspiring, that it is necessary, and that it will be kind. And then look at the, the fifth, the final point. Release anger appropriately. Release anger appropriately. Ephesians 4.26 again, if you become angry, don't let your anger lead you into sin. And what has really helped me is, is and during that reflection period is to ask three questions. Before I respond, ask three questions. First, why am I angry? I mean, why am I angry? And discern that. I mean, am I hurt? Have I been hurt by the other individual? And if I've been hurt, what does my biblical response need to be? To forgive. To forgive. Am I frustrated? Well, if I'm frustrated, what should be my response? It's to obey God. What would God have to do in this situation? Am I fearful? Am I angry because I'm fearful? Because I'm frightened? I'm scared? But then the issue is to trust God. Turn to God. And to trust Him. 
And then that second question, what would God have me to do about it? In other words, if it's to forgive, okay, what's going to be my plan? When am I going to approach this person? What am I going to say? What are the words I'm going to use? I mean, you plan it out, just like you were attacking an enemy. Uh, but the purpose of this attack is to not build a wall or to defeat, but is to build a bridge and, and, and to bring harmony. And so, what would God have me to do about it? If I'm frustrated, I need to obey God, whether it be in finances or disciplining children. Well, what does God's Word say? Where, how do I obey Him in this area in order to please Him? That, that's the key to dealing with frustration. Or again, if it's fear, how am I going to trust God? What are the verses that I'm going to take in my heart? I'm going to lay hold of and I'm going to believe in for. And then three, a very important question, when and how should I get started? Because this provides some accountability. This got, you've got to get this to where the rubber meets the road, where you're actually staying, taking steps to, uh, to make a difference. And then look at the key truth, which is not in your sermon, by the way. I didn't have room to get them on there. But just that last key truth, you cannot turn anger off. You must learn to redirect anger to be a constructive force instead of a destructive force. In other words, a lot of people see that they never get victory over anger because they're trying to turn it on and off like a light switch, and it doesn't work that way. When you're talking about your emotions, you're talking about energy, and that energy has to be released. The only question is, are you going to release it the right way or the wrong way? So the real key to anger is not turning it off, but learning to redirect it where you're, again, what? Not attacking people, but you're attacking problems. To resolve them, to build harmony, to build unity, to help other people, to minister to other people. The goal is not for Andy Merrick to get his way, but how can I minister to others? How can I serve them? How can I be an instrument to build them up? You know, as we, as we close this message out, you know, God is the, the greatest example of this, isn't He? You know, the, Romans 1 says, The wrath of God, isn't it? It says, The wrath of God has been revealed against all what? Ungodliness. Against those, He says, who, who suppress the truth. Where He talks about they, they knew the truth about God, but they refused to honor God. They refused to glorify God. They decided that they would live for themselves instead of living for God, living for their pleasure, not God's pleasure. And he says the wrath of God was, was revealed on and against those individuals. But God's wrath, God's anger, motivated him to do something about what man's sin and go. To do what we could never do for ourselves, to remedy the issue. And what did he do to remedy the issue? He sent His Son, Jesus, who left heaven and came to this earth as one of us. And He lived a sinful life. He did nothing but serve others. He did nothing but did good. did love. Yet He was put on a cross. And why was He put on a cross? Ultimately, they, people didn't see it from this perspective. But God ultimately was in control. And Jesus voluntarily went. He had the power to save himself. But he voluntarily went to die for your sin. To die. 
for the penalty of your sins. You cancel out your sin debt to forgive you. And because he died as a sinless individual, the grave could not hold him. And he rose again, and Jesus is alive. And he extends that gift of forgiveness to all who will put their trust in him, who will turn away from running their own lives, turn away from seeking their pleasure, turn away from their independence in to follow Him, to embrace Him as their Lord and as their Savior. And so if there's anyone here this morning and you've never put your trust in Jesus, you've never made your heart His home by asking Him in as you accept that gift of His Son, Jesus, to forgive you of your sins, to take control of your life, I would plead with you this day <coughs> Bow your heart to Jesus. Surrender to Him as your Lord and Savior. Because as we sang earlier, He is worthy of all that we are and all that we possess. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our affections. And He's worthy of our allegiance. And He's worthy nothing less than that. Amen? And then, for those of us who are believers, who are followers of Christ, this message has been to the children of God in our journey to become more and more like Jesus. Have you lost your passion for Jesus? I mean, that's the ultimate issue here. When we talk about you have to first have that resolve, what's going to give you that resolve? It's a love for Jesus. It's not following him out of a sense of duty, but out of delight for who he is and what he did for you. To lay down your life and surrender to him in appreciation for who he is and what he did for you. So maybe it's a need for you to simply return to your first love. And in returning to your first love, trusting him to give you the grace and the power to put these principles in effect in your life, which we cannot do apart from Him. But praise Him that He has not left us without the resources as we do turn to Him. So again, as I've shared with you many times, I believe this is a very important part of the service. Uh, I think this is a time when we all should reflect on what we have heard. What is God saying to me? How do I need to respond? Do I need to come to Him in salvation? Do I need to return to Jesus as a child of God to my first love? Do I need to acknowledge blowing up or claiming up or burning up as a sinful expression of anger that I've been excusing and minimizing and assume responsibility and repent of my selfishness and give up my expectations to serve God and to serve others? So each of you just respond in your heart as the invitation is extended.